All right, well, appreciate everybody coming out. We're to the, to the last Wednesday in October. So that means so many days till Christmas, something like that. Um, so, yep, and we're uh, kind of getting some fall weather coming along here. So again, appreciate everyone coming out. Appreciate everybody's support for Mission Sunday. Uh, and the Dunhams are off to their next location. So thanks to everybody who kind of helped feed them and support them and appreciate everyone's support there. Uh, let's go ahead and we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful again for the opportunity to gather how you have blessed us. We thank you for the visit with Kimmel and Lisa that we could be encouraged by them, and we ask you continue to bless their journey. There are many, uh, there are others on our mind tonight who are dealing with health issues and just other issues in life, and as we call those to mind, we ask that you hear these prayers, and we know that you hear and answer. We give you praise and glory for the word that you've given us, and we ask for just a special blessing tonight that we might uh, have insight into the word you've given us, and we ask this through Christ. Amen. All right, our scripture is Jewish. This is our last lesson uh, for this series. Appreciate everybody uh, working through this. So tonight it is, um, so our scripture is Jewish, so what does that mean? Goals for the class tonight will be to kind of explore some various means of interpreting Scripture and allow us to use the different tools that we've uh, kind of come through for the last several weeks about what Scripture is requiring of us. So for a few moments as we open, we'll just kind of look at the journey we've had here for the last really two months, three months, um, 13 weeks here. We started off with how did we really lose our Jewish roots? And to some, that could have been a question of, oh, do we really have Jewish roots? Uh, where did that come from? Well, Scripture is rooted in Jewish culture. All of the authors are Jewish. We can make a case that Mark was probably, or Luke was probably Jewish. Uh, uncertain, but there could be a case made for that. So if that's the case, then every, every author's Jewish, the context is Jewish, their culture is Jewish. So it makes sense that we try to understand it in that light. But as more Gentiles became um, a part of the church, the Jewish influence began to wane. And we saw through, throughout history how there have been efforts to really divorce the, the Bible from its Jewish roots, how others have taken on attempts to even wipe out the Jewish people. And it's interesting, isn't it, that God has said, this is my chosen people. And if we look at all the, the different tribes and groups of people that were in this Middle Eastern area several thousand years ago, we really only have one group remaining out of all of those groups. And that shows how God has cared for this chosen people throughout history, that the Jewish people remain. So I can't hear from that far away, but if others heard, good. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. 
I, you do have some Jews, as you did in the first century, who do accept Jesus as the Messiah. A lot of times that term is Messianic Jew. They will they refer to themselves as Messianic Jews, uh, typically in that vernacular. So yes, uh, there is a Jewish population, part of the Jewish population, does accept Jesus as Messiah and is very evangelistic to their Jewish brothers, just as Paul was. So, so that part really hasn't changed. Are they still... Um, Maybe persecuted might be too aggressive of a term, but are they still maybe rejected by those who are orthodox in their Jewishness? Uh, yes, so I, I don't see that that has changed from the time of Paul. Uh, so you have those accepting, those rejecting. Uh, we did, we've seen that what we refer to as the Old Testament uh, is really more properly maybe the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. Tanakh being an anacronym that stands for Torah, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. Nevaim being the prophets, Ketuvim being the other writings. It is in a little bit different order than our Old Testament. Our Old Testament is more in a Protestant order, uh, more chronological. Theirs is in more of a functional order. And again, when we look at Kings and Samuel, uh, we look at those or classify those as historic or historical books. They're classifying them as prophetic books, a part of the prophecy. So that's just a little bit of a different nuance in how that book or how those books are read. And again, for the Tanakh, it closes with Chronicles. And if you read Chronicles, that kind of makes sense because what is Chronicles? It's really a summary of the Torah and the tribe of Judah leading up to the coming of the Messiah. So as, as Chronicles is that summary, um, that kind of makes sense in the order. And just how the, the, the Old Testament is ordered in a Jewish sense has some functional um, ways about that that, that kind of makes sense. When we look at the Old Testament, we see there, in my opinion, there's two very seminal events that really we should be very familiar with due to the number of references in the New Testament about those events. That would be the call of Abraham and the Exodus. The call of Abraham was really the, the birth of a nation to where we have God now picking a single individual and saying, I am now going to work through you. And we said that Abraham is our father. We see that in several scriptures referring to Abraham as our father Abraham. And throughout the New Testament, we are always pushed back to who? Push back to Abraham and his faith. Uh, again, one of the major events with Abraham was the Akeda or the binding. That was the sacrifice of Isaac. And even today, when they blow the shofar, it's a ram's horn pointing back to the ram that was in the bush for the sacrifice of Isaac. So those events, if we, if, if we immerse ourselves in those events, then when we're reading through the New Testament, we understand the references and we're, those are clearer. The Exodus is where we now have this nation coming out and be, becoming, in essence, on its own. And all of the references in the New Testament, we've got baptism referring back to the Red Sea. 
We've got the giving of the law on Sinai and how now God is working with a chosen people and how he, he declares himself to these people and these people are to be a light to the rest of the world. That's their mission, is to show God to the rest of the world. That mission hasn't changed for us. We are to be a light. So we still see that same mission in our calling today. So as we look through the Old Testament, we see the life of Abraham, the Exodus, and then as you move through the prophets, we, we kind of see how did they do in following Torah, the law that God gave them, or the direction that God gave them. We know that Torah doesn't mean just law. Torah is direction. So it's God's direction for their lives. We also notice that there is culture within Scripture. There's culture everywhere. Everybody has culture. Culture is neither right or wrong. It's just where we are. It's the, it's the, it's the river we swim in. And we know the waters around us, but that's, we don't really take note of it because it's our culture. For us, we predominantly live in a Greek-thinking Western culture. We're heavily influenced by Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, as that Greek way of thought move up into Rome, Europe, and then where we are. So it is a very different way of thinking than the Hebrew method. We are very much an individualistic culture. Again, not right or wrong. That's just who we are. Our Bill of Rights is individual rights. Our country was founded on individualistic terms. So yeah, that's, we are that way. And as we read scripture, we, we just recognize, yes, I, I recognize this individualistic nature and there's some things that I have to really push back against that culture in accepting with scripture. We are predominantly a guilt-innocence culture. Again, we look at God as our judge, Jesus as our advocate, and we need our sins uh, removed so that our guilt is removed, and now we can have access to God. So we, we, most of our sermons are in a guilt language. It's not wrong. That's just who we are. And that appeals, and that is what resonates with most of us here. We see, though, that Scripture is written in a Hebrew Eastern thinking culture was predominantly a collectivist culture. Community is more important than the individual. And it was written predominantly in an honor-shame culture. So again, collectivists and honor-shame kind of go together because the community sets the standards and the community is what brings you back into uh, the center if you stray from it. So we see a lot of honor language throughout the Bible. And hopefully now, as we're reading through, we kind of start seeing some of, those lang some of that language. And we saw during the life of Christ, we saw a lot of honor challenges. So as the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up to challenge Jesus, they weren't just asking questions to ask them. Those were honor challenges. They were trying to bring him down some, move them up some. And what do we see? We see Jesus in every case winning those challenges. Until the last week of his life, it became so great that their only resource to gain any honor back was to kill him. 
So we see that, uh, that honor battle going on. And then we see the language uh, for us about how we are now honored because we have been adopted into God's family. We have been um, forgiven and we bear Christ. So those, again, are honor terms. And as we take the gospel into cultures that are more honor-based, using that approach has a better impact than maybe the guilt innocence. We've seen in the New Testament how there was a patronage system begun by the Greeks, really emphasized by the Romans. And Paul would have been in this culture. Now, it's not a Hebrew culture, but they were in a Roman culture, so they were very aware of how that functioned. We saw three main um, individuals within the patronage system. A patron was the individual with resources, a client who needed the resources, and a broker who's the go-between. And Paul framed his discussion to churches in Rome and Galatia and Ephesus in this broker language that they were very familiar with. We saw that grace is a term that was common in Greek in the patronage system, that grace was that which the patron gave to the client. It was not merited. They did not earn it. It was a favor that was extended. The client could not repay. That's why it was grace. But what was the duty of the client? The duty of the client was always to give grace back, thanksgiving, having a gratitude or a gracious um, actions back to the patron. And there was loyalty to the patron. And we know that's our term for faith. So Paul frames a lot of his grace discussion within this context. And if we see this context, now we kind of understand what Paul is telling us when he's talking about grace and faith and our response. Understand that grace to them was never just this one-sided uh, transaction that did not require any response. Grace demanded a response. So today when we kind of see, you know, and, and I, I'm not wanting to be critical, but teaching to say, you know, just say this prayer and that's it. No. Grace demanded that the client respond with gratitude, with honor, and with loyalty. And we see that in the New Testament as far as our response to Christ. Um, we also saw that a benefactor was one who gave public blessings. We see that in uh, the life of Christ with the centurion. The Jews that go to say the centurion, he sends Jews to help him. And they say he's, he built our synagogue. So they were in, indebted to him as a benefactor. They were for working as a broker to go see Jesus. And we see this in, in a larger sense. And what Paul says is that God is the ultimate benefactor. God is the ultimate patron. And when Paul describes faith, again, I believe he describes faith when he says, I know whom I have believed, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That is loyalty to the patron. That's faith. That I know God will never desert. He is always there. We looked at some of the biblical literary style. We saw that the, the, the Hebrew uses a block logic 
whereas we in the Greek use more of a step logic. We like to go from point A to point B to point C to point, just in a very linear, logical fashion. That makes sense. Why wouldn't you do that? They're looking at it more from a functional standpoint. We see this some in the writings maybe of Genesis, of how they're ordering events more functionally. We saw that they also use a, a literary style called chiasms. And that is from the, the Greek chi. It's kind of like an X to where you've got point A, point B, point C, and then maybe the middle point, and then you work your way out. And that was their way of emphasizing the main points. Why? Well, they didn't have bold font. And they couldn't highlight in the text. So what was the tool? The tool was a literary tool. Recognize what? It was an oral culture. So if I hear something repeated, I can kind of follow along better. And as we look through Scripture now, when we start to see, okay, I see something here, and I, I now see it repeated again. Maybe now I'm going to look at those as the bookends, and then start working my way back and maybe find that middle point and go, oh, okay. So that's what really is the main point of what we're talking about. We saw Matthew was written more than likely in a chiastic fashion. And what does that tell us? That tells us that he really wasn't writing a chronology we want to make it chronological. And then we want to put the Gospels together and, and match them all up chronologically. When really they weren't written that way. They were not written to be harmonized. Is it wrong for us to do that? No, not at all. We get a big picture. The only challenge is that we need to kind of be careful of is that we don't try to push things in where they really don't belong. Did Jesus cleanse the temple once or twice? It was early in John, late in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, that's really not the point. The point is he did. And whether John put it early because it fit better with what his message was and the other guys put it later because maybe that was chronologically when it happened, let's not get into trouble by thinking there's a discrepancy. Recognize there are no discrepancies in the Gospels. It's only because we try to interpret it under our view that we think there are certain discrepancies. One angel at the tomb, two angels at the tomb, who went? That wasn't the point. And it never was the point for them. Let's look at what was their message. And we can ask, okay, so why maybe did Matthew record it this way and Mark this way? That's, that's a point for us to kind of say, okay, let's look at this a little more to see what was the point they were trying to make in telling the story of Jesus. We saw, especially in the Psalms and Proverbs, a lot of parallelism to where we're seeing something stated twice. And that can help us understand if we take the first part, compare it to the second, and we can kind of get a better understanding. A lot of times we saw that God's faithfulness was also compared to something of a refuge. And that gives us an understanding then of how to look at it. We saw the not but phraseology quite a bit in the New Testament. Sometimes it's exclusionary. Jesus says, hey, you are not following me, but you're following Satan. Those were exclusionary when he talked to Peter. But we also see it sometimes as a matter of importance. What does uh, Peter say to Ananias and Sapphira? You have not lied to man, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit. 
Did they lie to men? Yes, right to their face. That wasn't the point. The point was, hey, yeah, you lied to men. More importantly, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. So as we see that phraseology, we can kind of start to look and see, okay, is the writer talking about something that's exclusive or is he talking about something that's a matter of importance? Some of the important principles, we saw the value of kinship. Uh, Phil had a lesson on the value of kinship, how the families take care of each other. And again, within our culture, uh, we, we put importance on family, but for most of us, we have the term for empty nest to where the kids have left, they've gone somewhere else, they're on their own, they've got their family. In this culture, the family was more on a compound. So they obviously took care of one another because they were together more. Again, this is not something that is relegated back to the first century. You go to Guatemala, uh, if we visit Kim on Lisa and you go to the families there, the, there's the whole family living in a single compound. Why? That's their family land. Uh, where else are you going to go? So that is something that is within various cultures. So what do we see there? We see in Guatemala a little more of this caring for one another. It's just more, it's a little more natural. And it extends to the church because that's their culture. That's what they're in. We have to work against that some. We have to work a little harder at this family concept of church. That you and I are brother and sister in a familial way. And those obligations to care for one another are just as strong as, as within our blood family. Done? It is. No, no, that's not exactly right. And, and to kind of expand that a little bit, for them the eldership is sometimes more consensus building and, and bringing people together than a decision-making body. They would never think, an eldership there would never think of getting in a room making a decision, coming out, and announcing that decision to the church. That just is not going to happen. They're going to go around and see that. Again, I'm not saying ours is right, theirs is, is wrong, or, or either way. I'm just saying that's the culture. And that's the culture that we would have seen more in the New Testament as we, as we look at them and as we read Paul's writings. Um, and again, as, as you look through the New Testament, we're going to see some tonight, just all the one another passages that are within the New Testament. You know, just, just highlight them. And note that those are family kinship passages. We also looked at purity markers. Again, everybody's favorite book of Leviticus. Um, and how Moses described these markers that were to designate a Jew from everybody else. And you were clean or unclean. And clean and unclean was not a status of sin and not sin. It was simply clean and unclean. If you did something that made you unclean, there was a purity ritual to bring you back into cleanliness. Was not wrong. Uh, for the ladies, every month, there was a period of uncleanliness. And that's just how it was. But then there was the ritual to come back into clean. We saw holy and common. Again, most things are common. Some things have been set apart to be holy. Most things are clean. 
at times they become unclean. They've crossed the boundary. And then we have to move back in. So we had these purity markers that um, basically set apart Israel. So again, markers of time, Sabbath, markers of people, markers of space, the temple. And even within the temple, there were various levels of cleanliness needed in order to proceed in and various individuals who could proceed in as it moved into the Holy of Holies. So as we went through all of that, the hope was that it might give us a fresh perspective. We started with the picture on the left and everybody goes, I have no clue what that is. I think one response was a chandelier. And we just changed the perspective just a little and we all go, oh yeah, I get that. And that's been the hope that I've had for, for these past 13 weeks is that we just change our perspective just a little and that some of the passages that we read, all of a sudden we can maybe go, okay, I, I kind of see what maybe he's saying there. It was to add some color and depth to our interaction with Scripture. So what that says is now, how then do I read Scripture? How do I go about a hermeneutics? We see that, so we kind of make that a religious term. Uh, it's, it's a generic term. It's a branch of knowledge that deals with interpreting something that's written. We have a hermeneutics for Shakespeare. So you, how do we understand Shakespeare? That's English to English. So it is a method of, uh, or theory of interpreting. What was the writer trying to convey? How do I interpret that? Our concern then is how do we then interpret the Bible? Okay, we read this now, but how do we interpret it? We've had this axiom, Phil kind of presented it in some of his classes, that the Bible is written for us, but it was not written to us. And it would be nice to sit down with Paul and say, okay, what did you really mean by that? Can you, can you, can you give me some explanation on that? Those in the first century would have understood what Paul said because they were living within that culture. So the things that were there that didn't need to be said, they understood. We have to work at it to get there. We also know that the Bible is God's revealed word. It does have application for us. It is our guide. It is our light. So we're not saying that there's no application with it. And as we talk about hermeneutics tonight, let's not have, I have no imagination or at all that I, we're going to solve this and people are going to look back and say, oh, those guys finally got it right. People have been arguing about hermeneutics and how to interpret scripture for hundreds of years, so we're not going to solve that problem. We're just going to look at some things, give us hopefully some things to think about. So how did the Hebrews interpret? Their anacronym for that is parties. Again, just like Tanakh is an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Pardes is an acronym for their levels of interpretation. So their first level of interpretation would be the Peshat. It's the simple meaning of the text. The next level is the Remez. It means a hint. There's another implied meaning that's alluded to in the text, usually revealing something a little deeper. The third level is the Duresh. It's a teaching or an exposition, an application of the Peshat or the Remes. 
It could be considered, we would kind of look at it more as a sermon to where you're taking a text and then you're, you're kind of expounding upon it. It's where the term midrash comes from. So the rabbis, as they would look at scripture and they would write out their interpretations, they would, it was eventually in the 200s compiled into a midrash where all the teachings were together. And then there's the sud, which is the hidden, the secret, or the mystic meaning. So the Hebrews looked at scripture, or the rabbis predominantly looked at it from these four levels. So the peshat, the simple meaning, it's the understanding of scripture in a natural, normal sense using the customary meanings of the word. It kind of is, hey, this is what it says, this is what it means. Now there are times to where it doesn't look that way, right? Again, we look at Isaiah 5-7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is in the house of Israel. Well, is he really talking that the house of Israel is a vineyard? So what they had, they had some rules that said, okay, if an inanimate object is used to describe a living being, then that's a figurative statement. Okay, I think we all get that. Secondly, when life and action are attributed to an inanimate object, the statement is figurative. Uh, then I turned, lifted up my eyes, looked, and behold, a flying scroll. Are we to say that there was literally a flying scroll? No. That's a figurative language because it's an inanimate object that um, has been afforded life and action. And their third rule was that when an expression is out of character with the thing described, it's figurative. So keep me as an apple of thy eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. Again, does God literally have wings for me to hide under? No. So there is a figurative language there. So that's their exceptions to taking the language as literal. Let's look at a Peshat meaning. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So the Peshat meaning to that would be she took the fruit and she ate it. Very simple. She peeled the banana. Oh, got everybody on that one. We were all thinking apple, right? Everybody's thinking apple. No, she took the fruit and ate it. That's just the simple meaning. That's the clear meaning. Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What is the Peshat meaning for that? That's the Exodus, right? The children of Israel had gone down to Exodus, out of Egypt. Israel is called God's son. So that's the literal meaning. That's the simple meaning of the term. We now have the remez, or the hint. With the remez, the scriptures hint at a deeper meaning without stating it explicitly. So for Adam... Also Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. What is hinted at? What is hinted at is that some animal was killed to create the tunics. It's not that God created these tunics out of thin air. So what is hinted at, but not explicitly stated, is that some animal had to die in order for this garment to be created. We call that oftentimes necessary inference. That's kind of how we would use that term. It's something that we infer. So let's compare the two. 
Look at 1 Timothy 3. Paul writes to Timothy and says, you must continue in the things which you've learned, been assured of, knowing. We come down and he says what? All scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction, righteousness. So when we look at that phrase, all scripture, what would the Peshat meaning be? The simple meaning, the clear meaning. All scripture would refer to the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Why? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, well, let's back up. What did Paul know as Scripture when he's writing to Timothy? The Tanakh. That's the only Scripture they had. Paul did not go, let's see, I think I'll write 1 Timothy. And that's going to be in a canon somewhere. No, Paul was saying all Scripture, the Peshat meaning is, all Scripture is the Old Testament, the Tanakh. What is the remez? What is hinted at? All Scripture is the Old and New Testament. That's how we're going to read that. So that's what is hinted at in what Paul is saying. Because now we see both Testaments together, something Paul could not see, but probably was hinted at. So I hope we can see there kind of the difference between the two of the literal meaning and the hinted at meaning. For us, we take all scripture to mean old and new. And we would put that as the literal meaning, but it really wasn't. Okay? We have to understand. Let's understand the setting, who Paul was writing to and when. So the Darash, teaching. They had three rules to consider when utilizing the Darash interpretation of a text. One, the Darash could not uh, strip the passage of its Peshat meaning. And it could not contradict the simple meaning. So I could not take a passage and then take that simple meaning that all scripture meant the Tanakh and totally wipe that out and come up with some other teaching. That would not be consistent with a Darash. Secondly, let scripture interpret scripture. Look for scripture themselves to define the components of an allegory. And third, the primary components of an allegory represent specific realities. Limit ourselves to those primary components when understanding the text. So there is a reality to the allegory. In this method of teaching or interpretation, the text may be given an allegorical, a typological, or homiletic meaning, not readily apparent. When Eddie teaches on Jude and makes certain points from Jude, that is a derosh. We see this in Scripture, in Matthew, in talking about when Jesus uh, was fled down to Egypt. Matthew says what? They had departed. Angel Lord told Joseph in a dream, take your child and his mother, flee to Egypt. So they fled to Egypt. And at the very ending, ending here, uh, and they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. So as we look at that, what did Matthew do? Matthew took something from Hosea. What was the Peshat meaning? The simple meaning of what Hosea said was, Israel literally came out of Egypt. But Matthew took that and applied it to Jesus. And saying, now this is, uh, I don't know if we would use prophecy in, in a strict sense there, 
But he's saying, I'm teaching, and then when Hosea says, out of Egypt call my son, he's now applying that to Jesus. So he did not destroy the simple meaning, but he has added on to it. So it's very much, again, this is very much like our sermons today, to where we take a passage, we look for other passages that may enlighten that or may pull things together. We take examples from real life, and we pull it together, and we say, here is a teaching from this passage. And it would be very similar to this right here, to the Rosh. The Sud is the hidden, um, and that's going to require knowledge of Hebrew, Jimiatra, uh, which is the numbers of the letters in Hebrew, and we're not really going to go there. Uh, it is a mystical, and I could not find any example that I felt comfortable kind of saying, here's what it is. Um, I would say when we are closest to this would be when we start delving into Revelation, and now all of a sudden Revelation is... Um, is Hitler, or Revelation is now we're going to see a, an atomic or nuclear war that's going to center on Israel. And we start getting into those esoteric meanings. That's probably the closest to this that we would have in, in our environment. So we've seen now how, how the Jews or the rabbis tried to interpret their scripture. And we have a method also. I mean, we're not coming to Scripture just as a blank slate. We have a hermeneutic also. And within the churches of Christ, we've got a fairly specific hermeneutic that has, has kind of been built through the, through the years. For our hermeneutics, typically, or mostly, we look to Acts and the epistles for guidance on, and I put it in quotes, church. We've typically used that portion of Scripture. I'm not going to say exclusively, but it's pretty close. As guiding our thoughts. We have used, and we, I think we've all heard the term, command, example, and necessary inference. And we've used that as our regulatory principles, or we've used it, we've heard this term sometimes as a blueprint principle. That these three form the blueprint of uh, how church is supposed to look like. Actually, the term was first postulated by a Puritan, Edward Deering. He lived in the late 1500s. That's really the first time we see that. He said this. He insisted that conclusions based on scripture and drawn from uh, proportion or deduction by consequence, that's necessary inference, is well the word of, is as well as the word of God is that which is express command or example. So it's really the first time we see this kind of tripartite uh, description of how do we interpret scripture by using these three terms. For us, we also kind of look at silence. Silence plays an important part in our hermeneutics. We kind of, uh, kind of debate, is silence permissive or restrictive? So if God doesn't say something about it, does that mean I can? Or if it is not expressly said that I can, then that means I can't. And this is built upon a principle really by Zwigli of Switzerland during the Reformation as a regulatory principle. 
So we've really, if we, if we trace our roots back, we kind of come more from this Zwigli part of the Reformation in Switzerland that then worked its way up into Scotland. And, you know, where's the Campbells from? Alexander and Thomas from Scotland, okay? So we're very heavily influenced by Alexander and Thomas Campbell. That's, uh, you may have heard the term Campbellites that sometimes we get referred to as. Um, so they were very influential. Uh, Thomas Campbell hooked up with Barton Stone. They kind of created this restoration movement. But Thomas Campbell and his thoughts, and then Alexander, really overshadowed Barton W. Stone and, and his way of thinking. Barton W. Stone was a little more of the charismatic and Alexander and Thomas Campbell a little more of the rational. And that part for our uh, tribe kind of won out. Alexander admits his dependence upon Francis Bacon um, and Francis Bacon at the time uh, again earlier than that but had this uh, method of scientific method. We'll talk about that in a second. But also recognized that this was the time of Scottish common sense realism, and there was a focus on the senses, what you could see, taste, touch. And they argued that there's a common sense in individuals. Now, I'm above my pay grade and going much more into detail about that, but recognize the culture of the time and how the world was coming out of the Middle Ages, and you have this philosophical revolution going on of Francis Bacon and others, and this played a major part in how the thinking of Thomas and Alexander went. Francis Bacon lived again in the uh, late 1500s, early 1600s, and in the 1620s or so, he introduces the scientific method that is where we observe facts and we take those facts and we come to certain conclusions. It's an inductive method. And facts are things that are said and done. We can observe them. And if you observe those facts, then you get to a certain conclusion. Thomas and Alexander Campbell said, if you uncover the facts, you will come to unity. But their definition of unity was a little more uniformity. And let's face it, in the science world, uh, if I study water, if I study water in Africa and I study water in America, I come to the same conclusion, right? It's H2O. And it's the same no matter what. So we have a uniformity. Thomas, saw that, Thomas Campbell, the elder, saw the need for command and example. He wasn't really sold on necessary inference. And in his declaration and address, he says, you know what, we cannot take necessary inference and hold that as a test of fellowship. Alexander Campbell saw the Bible as a book of facts because in it there are things that are said and done. Here's what Alexander uh, said. This is from C. Leonard, an article by C. Leonard Allen quoting uh, Alexander from Millennial Harbridge articles. Notice at the top, the Bible is a book of facts, not opinions, theories, abstract generalities, or verbal definitions. Um, comes on down, the meaning of the Bible, facts, is the true and biblical doctrine. History has to do with facts, and religion springs from them. The facts of nature and facts of 
Revelation are to be studied using the same method. One inductively gathers the facts, then through reason extracts the truth contained in them. Um, down a little further, great unanimity has been obtained in some of the sciences in consequence of the adoption of certain rules of analysis and synthesis. So what is he saying? He's saying, you know what? This method that Bacon came up with about looking at facts and then coming to occlusion, that's worked pretty good for the sciences. So what? That should work really well for religion. Because if I look at the Bible as a set of facts, and we all see the same facts, we will all come to the same conclusion. And the scientific method is very good for science. But scripture's not science. Again, if I study aeronautics, it, it's the same facts that cause a plane to fly in the United States that cause a plane to fly in Africa and Australia, even though Australia's on the underside of the world. Those facts are consistent. And if an aeronautical engineer studies aeronautical facts, they're going to come to the same conclusions as somebody else. Why? Because science is not dependent upon culture or language. The same method that an airplane can fly now is the same method that Abraham could have used had Abraham been able to figure that out because those facts haven't changed. But the Bible is not written as a set of facts. The Bible is written in a culture and with a language. And because of that, that nuance changes it because there's not that same consistency that we get in science. And from that, I, saw, I see really kind of two issues, two challenges. Again, I am not saying that this is wrong, that we've been interpreting Scripture wrong. Not at all. What we're saying is, let's be aware of how our movement has progressed, its roots, and let's take the strengths of that and be aware of the challenges that it presents. That's, that's a good question. That's, that's a very good observation, is sometimes we do find what we look for. If I challenge you not to look for any yellow cars tomorrow, what are you probably going to see? That's how many yellow cars there are. So when we, we see that a part of what Thomas and Alexander Campbell based their hermeneutics on was a scientific method, and then we see that really the Bible is not written as a science book. We need to understand the challenge that that presents us. And really what it presents us is everything comes down to an inference. Even the commands. We are inferring as a command. As an example, greet one another with a holy kiss. Sounds kind of like a command. And it's not mentioned just once, but five times. Four times, same language by Paul, once by Peter, a diff little different language. And don't even think about it, Carl. But, but that, that, looks like, that looks like a command. But I haven't seen it in 62 years in the church. What do we do? 
we infer? What do we say? Well, that is cultural. That was their cultural greeting. And what Paul's really saying is that to greet one another with the typical cultural greeting of your time, but do it in a set-apart way, do it in a sanctified way, and that you are to extend welcome. So we take what looks like a command that should exclude any other method, right? Greet one another specific, holy kiss. What does that mean? That means handshakes. It's not a holy handshake. It's not a holy elbow bump, not a holy fist bump. A holy kiss means a holy kiss, no other method. Do we do that sometimes with some passages? But here we say we're going to make an inference. So when we look at how they, the hermeneutic of the Campbells, what we see is that everything comes down to an inference, how I infer it. The second challenge is that church became, I think, the focus. Again, my opinion here. We were... We, were, we became concerned about having sound churches or faithful churches. We were wanting to be very autonomous in our churches. And at times we forgot about the passage that says there's one body and one church. And then we began to define, okay, what is a sound church? What is a faithful church? And we had our, our purity markers to where now if I'm looking for what is a sound church, I'm trying to see, does that church support children's homes and orphans out of the church budget or is the church budget only for the saints how many cups do they pour the grape juice into where's the kitchen okay you mean you offer Lord's Supper on Sunday nights and we became somebody where we're trying to find all of these markers now to identify a sound church and what we don't see through the epistles, is Paul going around saying, this is a sound church and this is not. So now as, a, as someone going, going into a new body, I'm trying to figure out, okay, is this a place I can worship? Because for me growing up, what the implication was, was that if this is not a sound church, I, I never saw, heard this stated, but it was always a wonder. So does that mean you're lost? If, if I'm attending a church that's not sound, have I lost my salvation? And really, I, I've got to determine it's not the blood of Christ anymore. It's where I tend. And, and I had a lot of trouble trying to reconcile that with, with what I was hearing. We were looking, as, as Carl said, we were looking for a blueprint of what the church should look like. And I think we looked back to Leviticus and we saw in Leviticus in the Old Testament and Torah, we saw a blueprint of what God gave them. God gave them specifics for the tabernacle. God gave them specifics for how they should live. He gave them purity markers. He, he put up some stuff for them to see. But what we have to recognize is that, you know what, the epistles aren't written like Leviticus. Let's, let's push it backwards. Let's say the Leviticus was written like the epistles. How would that have looked? In my mind, I would see that Moses maybe writes Dan to the tribe of Dan and gives them a few lessons on leprosy. And then to the tribe of Judah, here's what you need to do on the Sabbath. And maybe to the Asherites, here's what you can eat and not eat. And he does that over the course of 20 years. 
And somehow the children of Israel are going to have to take all these different letters that Moses writes, pull them together to say, okay, here's what Israel's supposed to look like. We go, that's not going to work. That's not how it's done. No, Leviticus was written what? One time and given to one nation so that everybody's on the same page at the same time. And the epistles were written completely different. Written to a specific church to address a specific problem for a specific question that's been asked. And we're getting, in essence, one part of the letter. Be nice to have had the other correspondence. And what we have to, what, we're, what we struggle with is, okay, so the instruction that Paul gives in Corinth, is that instruction just for Corinth? Or is that instruction for all time, for all people, for all places? And that, that's where we struggle with some of Paul's statements. It's just, bottom line, that's what we struggle with. How do we then interpret that? And that's our hermeneutic. That's the hermeneutic is, how do we now interpret Statements of Paul given to a church. One option is possibly a theological hermeneutic. Uh, This is uh, predominantly from John Mark Hicks, where we look at the whole of Scripture and the life of Christ. What I'm saying is, as we look to to understand Paul, let's expand it. Not that the church is now defined by Acts and the epistles, by all of Scripture. And we look at the life of Christ. Christ is really our pattern, and his plea was that we be like him. So if I am going to have a pattern hermeneutic, let's make sure I pick the right pattern. And I believe that pattern is Christ. So how can we apply this? Uh, again, he, he offers these three steps. An affirmation of the text. That is exegesis. That's seeing what is what is the text model or call the individuals to do. What did they do in the text in their setting, or what in the text in their setting called for this behavior? Why was Paul telling them to do this? The substance of the text, and here's where we bring in all of Scripture. We look at God's values. What theological principles are included within the text? God's story. How are those principles reflected in the narrative? God's identity, how do those principles embody God's own identity and God's Messiah? How are those principles seen in the life of Christ? And from there, step three is the application. That's our ministry direction. How do those principles in our setting relate to us? And what do those principles call us to do? Let's do it as an example. Picked an easy one. Nobody ever fights about this one. Okay, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Just a little hint there. What do we see? We see this not but phraseology, right? Are we talking exclusionary? Are we talking importance? Um, So just something to think about as we look at this. As I grew up, this was the passage used to mandate or regulate church attendance or attendance at the assembly. Uh, And again, I'm just going from my, uh, I think I'm close to a lot of you. Again, growing up south, uh, again, Nashville, Tennessee, basically Lipscomb, Mecca. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. But that's the passage was used. It was always used. What? You shall not forsake the assembly. And that was for all people, for all places, for all times. 
a story that I heard once, a minister was relating how he was um, helping another family search for a child that had drowned, and that search was happening on Sunday morning. And he was reprimanded for forsaking the assembly. Because why? This is a blueprint pattern. And you are not to forsake the assembly. But as I read this passage, I look at it and I go, you know what? This is, this is a positive command. What's the positive command? Exhort one another. Not forsaking just modifies that. Explains it. That, hey, you can't encourage somebody if you're not there. So you know what? People could be showing up, sitting in the pew for years and never once fulfill this passage. And we never taught that. I never heard that taught. You come to encourage. But if we're looking for a blueprint, then we see, okay, I've got the command. You have to be here three times a week. Yeah, that was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, right? Uh, men's breakfast didn't count, but the, the three majors did. We used it as a command. What if we use the whole of Scripture in the life of Christ as a pattern? What if we look at more of this from a theological standpoint? Well, in the Old Testament, what do I see? I see God called holy assemblies. Deuteronomy 9, he talks about calling Israel to a holy assembly. Here's what's interesting. In the Septuagint, Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In the Septuagint, when God calls this holy assembly, he uses the word ekklesia. Stephen, when saying, talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness, says the church, he says these were the people of the ecclesia. What term do we have in the New Testament for the church? Ecclesia. So God uses the same term in the Old Testament to talk about the children of Israel gathering for a holy assembly as he does for us in the church. So God set apart days and times of his children coming together. This weekly Sabbath, right? And holy assemblies. What do we see in the life of Christ? We said Jesus had the, the habit of attending Sabbath. We see the writer saying, and Jesus went to the synagogue as was his habit or custom. Jesus saw that. Why? To encourage. We see Jesus at the temple during certain festivals. Because that was a time to encourage. And Jesus went to the synagogue even though the synagogue was not authorized in the Old Testament. That's a man-made thing. And Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication even though the Feast of Dedication was not one of the feasts that God said, I want you to celebrate. Jesus saw the need to fellowship and to meet and to assemble. So if I look at that, what do I then conclude? Well, if Jesus saw the need to assemble, if God felt the need for the children of Israel to assemble, then I'm going to assemble. I don't really need Hebrews telling me not to forsake. Because if I am a follower of Christ, I'm going to follow his habit and his examples, and his habit was to weekly gather and to at the time of festivals gather. So that's how I think we can try to see is we can start pulling in all of Scripture and say, how do I interpret 
Well, I try to interpret by looking at how did God direct the children of Israel? How did Christ live his life? Now, how does that call me into a response? I'm not assembling to obey a command in Hebrews. I'm assembling because that's what my pattern did. That's what my Savior did. So in summary, not going to be too many minutes over. So in summary, again, a couple minutes over, not too bad this time. We're going to struggle with issues. It's not going away. We are going to struggle with women's role, with how do we praise God in the corporate worship, how is the church organized. We're still going to struggle with those issues. But hopefully now what we do is we take what we've learned as far as culture and as far as taking all of Scripture, taking the life of Christ, and try to interpret those passages within that context. And it's a struggle because you know what? The Sabbath is a struggle for the Jews. They've been struggling with it for 2,000 years and still struggle. Quick example, in predominantly Jewish areas, if you have an elevator. Now, the Jewish has said, if, if you push a button, you're engaging machinery, and engaging that machinery is now work. So now I get on an elevator, and it's Sabbath. And I'm on floor 70. What am I going to do? Am I going to... Say, oh, that's really not work. I'm just pushing a button, or am I going to honor the Sabbath? So in Jewish cultures, in, in Israel, a lot of Jewish areas, they have a Sabbath elevator. What's a Sabbath elevator do? It stops on every floor. So as a Gentile, make sure you don't get on a Sabbath elevator. But that's, they're, they're struggling with that because, you know, Moses didn't address elevators. So how do we interpret, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't do work on the Sabbath in our environment? They're struggling with that. We struggle, too. So how are we going to work through those struggles? My goal is that we come with a fresh perspective and appreciation of Scripture by seeing the culture, by seeing the nuances in the language, and having that appreciation of Christ as our pattern. But when it all comes down to it, some parts are hard, but the bottom line is still, and it will always be, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Do to others what you wish them to do to you. As Jesus said, do not neglect the weightier matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faith. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I think God says right here, here's your pattern. Your pattern's Jesus. Be imitators of him. We'll struggle through it, but in love and hopefully uh, mercy, those are the things. God never condemns the Israelites for for the, the stuff, does he? What does he say? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Was the sacrifice important? Yes. But what's he saying? I'm concerned about your heart, concerned about your mercy, how you're treating others. And I don't think that's changed for us today. So with that, I appreciate everyone's coming. Appreciate you sitting through. This to me was a, I uh, felt a risky uh, experiment to see if this class would work. I hope that at least one thing within these last 13 weeks has been beneficial. Probably something Phil said, and that's fine. <laughs> but I do appreciate Phil uh, filling in, 
and I appreciate y'all coming. And next week we've got Eddie. So uh, you got it from there. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.